Welcome to Sex, Body and Soul. I'm Kate Roberts, founder of The Body Agency. And on this show, we talk about the marvel that is our bodies, what they can do and what they need to thrive. Ladies out there, our time is now. Let's get to it. My next guest is the very brilliant Ian Solomon, Dean of the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy, the University of Virginia, where he leads a multidisciplinary faculty of scholars and practitioners who are committed to creating new knowledge, developing ethical and effective leaders, and advancing solutions to humanity's greatest policy challenges. And there really is nobody better that I would trust with this very sensitive subject, race, power, and equity. So thrilled to have him on the show. Ian Solomon, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kate. Wonderful to be here. It is so good to see you again. I I had the pleasure of being with you recently at the university where you hosted us YGLs for a course, and we're going to get into that. But before I go there, I wanted to offer my condolences at the University of Virginia, where you are the dean. There was a shooting recently. It's just absolutely tragic. And I feel for you and the families and everyone down there that went through that. I'm so sorry. Thank you, Kate. We, we appreciate that support. It certainly was a tragic event down here. And for the three individuals who've lost their lives and their families, I continue to feel enormous grief and sympathy. What I will say is that the community is pulled together in a profound way. And one of the things about moments of extreme loss is they can sometimes show you how much love there is. And I think we've seen a lot of love expressed here and, you know, including a very special lighting of the lawn ceremony last night, a big tradition for Virginia that was repurposed really to honor these very special lives that we've lost. Well, again, I am constantly horrified and appalled by gun violence and how it still is possible to even happen. So that is a whole different podcast. We are here to talk about systemic racism and power. And I I mentioned those two subjects because they go hand in hand. And as I had said earlier, I was very privileged to be part of a course that you have hosted at the University of Virginia. You were asked by the World Economic Forum to put this on, which you did in an incredible way. I mean, Ian, when I tell you it blew my mind, I I was not expecting that to happen. And I made the decision that I wanted to attend the course, which, you know, to our listeners, how it works is both Ian and I are part of a group, a community called the Young Global Leaders, which is a World Economic Forum program. And they afford us the opportunity occasionally to come and get re-educated, sometimes to be just educated in certain subjects like this one, which was about systemic racism in America. And... I decided to go because I wanted to really get up to speed in where we stand right now in America with racism, with really understanding our own biases. I wanted to understand mine and really go deep, and I was able to do that during those few days. My first question to you, Ian, is why did you decide to take this leadership at the school? 
Thank you, Kate. Well, let me first say on the course, I've got as much out of it as the participants did. And it really is a, an enormous privilege and a humbling one to put together a leadership course for such an astonishingly impressive group of global leaders. We had people from the public sector, private sector, education, finance, all around the world. I don't know, we have 25 countries represented among the, the, the 35 participants. It really was an enormous privilege to be there and to learn from everybody because this is a journey. Trying to exercise leadership is about empowering communities to achieve something of value, particularly in the face of change and difficulty. So to work with people who do that and have done that and have demonstrated and exercised that in all sorts of contexts in Brazil and Nepal and Singapore in the U.S. really was such a, a, a powerful experience. So I, I, it, was a, it was a privilege for the University of Virginia and the Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy to take on this course. And for me, it's been a privilege to, to be and try to exercise my leadership at this school at this time. The University of Virginia is one of the uh, most wonderful universities in the U.S., but with a complicated history, often on the wrong sides of issues throughout America's tortured past dealing with this birth defect of slavery and a racial caste system. Mm -hmm. um, so to be part of the change here, to be part of using our weight of history to help transform educational opportunities, both for full-time students getting undergraduate degrees and a master of public policy degree, but also for young global leaders in the World Economic Forum and people out making change happen in business, in politics, on podcasts, with body agencies. You know, it really is, is, is such a, a delight. Mm. Now, what was so interesting to me is how you structured this course is you first spent the first couple of days, as you say, really looking at the history. And it, it was fascinating to me, having, having grown up in the UK and, and, and spending my life traveling, right? I've been to 120 countries. So I've literally seen the effects of, of slavery and you know, racism and discrimination amongst marginalized groups you know, all over the world. And I think it was a challenge during our week because we did literally have that international crowd, right? And everybody was keen to talk about you know, racism in their countries, although we were very much focused on on America. So let's stick with America for the moment. And, you know, having grown up in the UK in a generation where most of our parents were just racist, flat out racist. And, you know, I definitely grew up with a father who, you know, would say awful things. And, you know, I would just think that was normal, right? Because you're so influenced by your your family. But then fast forward to this course and what I started to learn. And one of the things that really stuck in my head was a colleague of yours put up a slide where it had the slave badge star next to the current policeman's badge. That really, I mean, such a powerful image and visual because it brings it home to you, especially with everything that has happened in the last couple of years with the police. So you really went into the history and let me ask you this, and this is a tough one because it's a very big picture. Why are we still grappling with this in such a big way? Because I definitely walked away from this course thinking, oh God, like, have we even made any progress? Why are we still where we are? So 
I'll answer that in a couple of ways, Kate. Um, and again, these are my thoughts, and I don't pretend that my thoughts necessarily are, are wiser than your thoughts and, and, and the other people who grapple with this all the time. But I'll say this. I think we have made progress, but we are nowhere near where we can and need to get to if we want to be a successful, sustainable, multiracial democracy in this country. Um, there's a long road ahead of us. And I think we focus on history in this class. We structure it within this concept called the culture cycle, mm -hmm. which looks at how ideas influence our institutions, influence our interpersonal interactions, influence our individual attitudes and biases, and how they all reinforce and interrelate, right? So there's a graphic that we show that talked about how each of these factors play into creating our culture. And I'm actually quite critical or at least skeptical of lots of the unconscious bias training out there because it implies that by, if we can get people to be aware of their own bias, mm. we can somehow change the nature of this racial caste system and racial inequity in this country. And I, I think that's important to tackle our individual biases. But if we don't see how they are reinforced through our interactions, how they are perpetuated through our institutions and policing is a great example of an institution that embodies and then further perpetuates notions of this racial hierarchy and how all of that falls within a framework of a set of ideas, deep ideas that we don't always realize even how deep they go until you dive back through yeah. the history and the justifications for kidnapping people throwing them into the hulls of slave ships, discarding their bodies as if they were meaningless, except as a form of property and, and labor, to understand and show the pictures and try to talk about you know, the celebrations around lynchings in this country. Yeah. This deep, penetrating force of subjugation of certain people, and whether it was the indigenous, whether it was people of African descent, one really has to grapple with that. And then see how that has worked itself from those ideas into our institutions, not just our legal and political institutions, but our educational institutions, our structures of finance and capital, our governing structures, our police, our healthcare systems. Because then, go from institutions, how does it affect how we interact and how police interact with their communities, how communities view the police? So it's a sobering process, right? And, and to ask, let's go back to your question of why are we still here? Well, we haven't actually done a lot of the work. We like to pat ourselves on the back for moments of progress, but one of the, the, the real tragedies of American history is you see moments of progress followed by backlash, right? So, you know, we finally have a civil war, to, which was all about slavery, to do away with slavery. There is an effort towards reconstruction and then a terrible backlash against reconstruction. And I talked a little bit in the course about the movement behind the lost cause and efforts to undo the progress of reconstruction and enter into Jim Crow and terrible racial violence and intimidation to try to turn the clock back from be to before the Civil War. Ultimately, you have to have another civil rights movement to move forward again. And I would argue that the progress we saw with the election of President Obama and that amazing first family that I was proud and honored to work for, I don't think we saw a backlash with the subsequent administration of, of Donald Trump. Um, and this struggle is an inherent part of the American democratic struggle. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I don't necessarily want to make this about politics because, you know, I try to remain bipartisan, honestly. I think politics is on both sides sometimes extremely destructive with everything, everything you just mentioned, healthcare, 
equity, you know, jobs, politics just is very destructive. However, when President Trump got up and pointed into the crowd and said, oh, look, there's my African-American. I mean, I think all of us just, you know, went numb. I mean, how can a president do that and still be elected? Anyway, that is, again, a, a whole different podcast. And, you know, I think I told you, Ian, you so remind me of President Obama, the way that you present yourself, the way that you speak. You're so presidential. And it must have been such an incredible time that you spent with him, learned from him. And, yeah, you, you definitely have a lot of those uh, characteristics. <laughs> well, it certainly was an honor to, to work for him. And I, I learned a lot in that process. Yeah. yeah, he's an extraordinary man, the perfect man almost. Let's get back to individual biases. This week, I don't know whether you've been watching the news, but Prince William's godmother, who is a member of the royal staff, resigned because for a very simple but horrific reason that she pressed a guest that was coming into the palace about his or her, I don't know if it was a male or female, race. And when they kept saying they were English, she said, yeah, but where are you really from? And then she felt like she needed to resign. And, you know, I'm casting myself back to when I lived in England, uh, which was many years ago, you know, that sort of stuff was kind of seen as normal, you know? <laughs> But as you say, we've made a lot of progression. But what are your thoughts on that, actually? Because it, it happens here all the time. And I'm sure you get that question, right? You are of mixed race. I think you've said during the course that you're taken for Middle Eastern and all different nationalities. But what are your thoughts on that? So it's an important reminder that race is not something that exists. It is something that we create. Doesn't exist independently. There is no biological basis for something called a race. So, race is something that we do, it's something that we make. And why do we do it? Why do we make this concept of race? And why have we given it such import and meaning and substance and power in the force mm -hmm. of human history? Mm -hmm. Right? So, pressing someone on where are you really from is kind of saying, no, I want you to fit into some box and some narrative that probably has served my populations more than it served your populations. So, you know, I'm, I try to be charitable, so I don't know this incident and I don't know the motivations behind it. You know, I try to say we need to kind of listen with charitable ears as well as we speak charitably towards others, try to find moments to create teachable moments and share, you know, when you ask questions in that way, it actually makes me feel like I don't belong here. I wish you yeah. would ask things that way. I think there are ways to confront people about that, but I think this, we need to constantly be looking at how, race is often reified and given more power in our daily interactions and in our institutions. Can we, uh, people who we want to embody as leadership for racial equity, people we want to encourage and inspire to actually take action against this, how can they be on the lookout for slights that they feel, because hopefully many of them will themselves be coming from these marginalized populations, identify those moments where we can reverse that and yeah. overcome that and help people feel like, no, this is your place to exercise yeah. judgment and influence and governance. Mm. Do you really do that, Ian? When somebody says to you, no, where are you really from? Do you really communicate how it's making you feel? Because I feel that that is a solution moving forward, right? We should be able to say, like, I get annoyed when people say to me, are you Australian? No, no you're Australian, right? No, you're from New Zealand. I'm like, 
no, I'm British. And then what people then do is they try to imitate my accent, right? So it's it's very similar. Like, it annoys me. I try to be gracious, but it happens over and over again because I live in America, right? So, But do you really do that? Do you really communicate how it's making you feel? So I tried. I'm not dictating this as the best strategy for everybody, but uh, you know, one of the, the methods that I have found very powerful in my life and my leadership and my teaching of negotiation and leadership is nonviolent communication. Mm. And one of the tactics there is blame and criticism generally gets you nowhere. It makes the other side defensive yep. and reduces the opportunity for collaboration and problem solving. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. But if I can, that's you know, it goes back to kindergarten. Speak with I messages. Right. Rather than saying you did this, we know that is not an effective way to get change. Rarely is it effective. There may be situations where it is, but most of the time if you say, you know, Kate, when you said this, I felt that. Yeah. Can I get you at that moment to see my humanity mm-hmm. and, to, and to maybe learn from it so that next time you'll be more thoughtful. If I just make you defensive now, you're going to dig in on, I'm allowed to ask you, if you have an accent in my country, I'm going to ask you where it's from. Yeah. Yeah. And embodying that is the notion of my country and you're not part of it. And somehow I want to exclude you. What, well, yeah. how is that serving me? And how might that be creating a hierarchy mm. that I want to perpetuate or better off want to overturn? Yeah. I mean, racism comes in so many different forms, right? I think we, we all feel it in some way, but to get back to where we are and what some of those solutions are, I during the course, kept thinking about education because, you know, racism is ignorance, right? It's ignorance. You know, I'm sure that that lady in the royal palace did not mean to be offensive. She's worked for the queen for 60 years, something like that. Like, I'm sure she didn't mean that. However, it was ignorant, right? It was an ignorant question. And I'm also recognizing my own ignorance as somebody who, you know, would be characterized as as white privileged, right? I am white privileged. And because I am white privileged, I have a certain power. So I want to talk about that. And I want to talk about education. Now, I, I went down my own path, right? Because you know, I came out of this sort of racist family in England where racism is, you know, we didn't even talk about it during the week, but we have our own set of issues in the UK with a very large Indian and Pakistani community. That's where racism bubbles up in the UK. And it's it's horrific and it's huge. It's a massive, massive problem. And of course, we've got Brexit and that doesn't help. I want to sort of explore this whole notion of white privilege. What would be your definition of white privilege. So one of the interesting things we've learned is that people of different backgrounds often interpret the same interaction quite differently. And I think you had a presentation during the course from one of my colleagues, Professor Sophie Trawalter, talking about some of the ways that in interracial interactions, there's often a different set of underlying assumptions, right? So oftentimes, and these are averages that don't apply to everybody, of course, but the white person in an interracial interaction is more likely to think in terms of, oh, some people are disadvantaged because mm. they're basing their orientation from, from their status quo. Whereas typically, or on average, the black person in the interaction will say some people are privileged. Mm. 
right? And some groups are underrepresented, some are overrepresented in our institutions, in our, in our governance, right? Another one of the, the, the differences that some people view things is oftentimes the white person interaction will look at, look how much progress we've made and yeah. they'll measure how far we've come. And more often the person of color in that conversation will say, look how far we've yet to go. go look at the yeah. distance we yet need to travel to make a difference. Another difference of interpretation is often, you know, whether racism is about an individual and some individual attitude of bias, or whether it's something deeper, something more systemic. Mm. You recall the example I used in the class, I, I talked about the, the David Foster Wallace joke that, that he used to tell about, you know, two fish are swimming along and they pass by an older fish and the older fish says, how's the water boys? Mm -hmm. And they swim off a little bit until one of the fish says, what the hell is water? Yeah. Right. We are mm -hmm. so. That's powerful. We're, we're swimming in the power of the of this racial caste ideology and practice. It's in our pores. It's in our gills. It's in our lungs. We don't have the ability to even recognize that we are swimming in it oftentimes. Yeah. Yeah. And until we raise the awareness of that, it's going to be very hard to make real progress. Yeah. Right? And I also show the the clip from 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 the movie, the, the 1999 movie Matrix, with Lawrence mm -hmm. Fishburne. And Keanu Reeves talking about, you know, do you want to see the truth? Do you want to actually, are you prepared for the painful, difficult reality of seeing what's behind the matrix? Yeah. So white privilege, you know, people get all defensive about it. Yeah. So I don't use that language very often. What I want to do is let's become aware yeah. of how these ideas might be invisible to you. You may not even be aware yeah. of the force of gravity in your life. And this is a force that might be as powerful as gravity. Yeah. So I get back to education because I can assure you that I've said and done things in my life that I'm sure have been offensive, but nobody's told me, right? Because, you know, I've sat in my ivory tower, right? Kind of untouchable in a leadership, in a big leadership position. Unless people tell you, you don't know. <laughs> so if we get back to education, my 11-year-old daughter came home the other day and she asked to read with me. She had been given a book from school. can't remember the title now, but she's 11. And we started reading this book together and it was all about a slave. And this book was really written in a way where the way of speaking, as, you know, as in it had been changed to sound like the slave. The N-word was used throughout the book. You know, as I'm reading this book with her, I'm thinking, my feelings are mixed, right? One, I'm like, I am thrilled that this school is talking about this and teaching about the history of what happened. And at the same time, I'm like, you know, she looked at me and she said, you know, I'm warning you, mommy, there's the N-word coming up in this book. And you know, I, I got into a discussion with her about what all that means and which was great, but the N-word is so offensive. And I said that to her. I said, you can never, ever, ever use that word. What are your thoughts on how early? Uh, we talked about this during the course, right? It's like, should this be taught in schools? During my English education, you know, when I tell you that American Indians were referred to as Red Indians. So when I came to the States, that's the term that I used to refer to those communities. 
And somebody had to tell me, that's really offensive, Kate. You know, you can't use that. And I was taught that in school. So thoughts. This is a tough one, right? This is a yeah. tough one. Well, clearly I am in the field of education because I believe in education, because I believe our, the, the fundamental features of our humanity is the capacity to learn and change and grow and improve. If I didn't believe that, that I'd be, in, that I wouldn't be in this line of work. So obviously, um, maybe it's not obvious. I'll just put it out that you know, among the most important things we need to do is be educating ourselves, helping to educate others, helping to treat a lot of these things as and and recognize that people have the capacity to be educated. Mm-hmm. Right. I try to adopt and encourage people to have a growth mindset on things. Right. It's not you are a bad person. You did the wrong thing. You're now outcast. Instead, it's no. Your brain can change. Mm. Your ideas and your attitudes can change. Mm-hmm. Our society can change. We can decide, as we have in some contexts, that certain types of language and behavior we no longer want to tolerate mm-hmm. because they no longer create the community that we want to live in. But this is a lot of work, and 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 it's not it's not an uncontested process. We see now these debates over what can be taught and how it can be taught, because God forbid some people feel somehow insulted in the process of going to school, parents want to jump in and say, you know, we can no longer learn that. Now, I, I don't want to weigh in on the particular debate. I'm a big person. I believe we, need, we should be teaching everything. And we want to be pushing people towards the truth and towards real knowledge. And the idea that we're going to ban books, I think, is, is very, very dangerous for the future of our democracy. It's going to be hard. We're yeah. going to have people who sometimes do feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you learn anything if you don't go through a little bit of discomfort. Yeah. It's a critical part of, of growth and of our brains actually getting larger and better and more effective. Yeah. So I believe in it. And I think I, I applaud you for actually grappling with these issues with your daughter. And I would recommend just doing it with some humility because, mm-hmm. you know, the same, you know, your father, I suspect, did the best he could to yeah. make sense of the world in which he lived. And you are now doing the best you can to make sense yeah. of the world in which you live. And your daughter will look back and say, my mom was so ridiculous and so so lost on so many things. And, so, and future generations will look back on us and say, can you believe they did X, Y, and Z? Yeah. You know, whether it relates to climate, whether it relates to how we, you know, our agriculture, so many things we do that seem someday will look like they were um, backwards and we knew better. Yeah. Well, I I also think the innocence of a child, you know, it's so interesting. I only have one child and and being a parent is an incredible privilege. I know you have a a couple of children and we have a big responsibility, right? We have a huge responsibility to pass that knowledge on to our children and not our biases, right? That is really hard, right? I've seen it firsthand from, from my own family. Well, I think we can try. Yeah. You know, this is not a, a session. I'm not an expert on child rearing or nor, nor child development psychology. Our kids will pick up our biases. I think yeah. it, whether even if we are working hard to try to tell them, let's not do this, they will see how we respond. They will observe our body language and interactions. Yeah. But I see, again, I get back to this, this sweet innocence of my daughter who, you know, I would say 70% of her friends are not white Caucasian, right? She has this incredible mixed group of beautiful friends from Russia and Peru and Chile and and African-American friends. And she sees color. I hate this statement. 
they don't see color. Of course, we all should see color. <laughs> but, you know, she's even said to me sometimes, mommy, that's racist. Mommy, that's racist, right? When the Black Lives Matter, when George Floyd happened, she changed her iPad screen to black. You know, it's just like little things like this that give me huge hope. And I get back to parents' role because in my mind, I walked away from that course last month, two things in my mind. One was the role of parents because I am a parent and I see how we influence our children and the role of education. Right. And, you know, when we talk about hope and we talk about, okay, what's next, right? How, like all of us young global leaders were sitting in your class saying, okay, action, right? We want to do something, right? What can we do? And we've, right. we have come together as a community with various thoughts of the things that we can do, right? And I definitely walked away from that course thinking we need to do more of this, right? This was extremely powerful, this course, Ian. And congratulations to you on pulling this together. And we absolutely need to do this a hundredfold, right? Yeah. And I, and, and, but I hope people will take away um, those in the course and perhaps those listening as well as recognize we need to tackle this from multiple dimensions. Exactly. Right. So both the let's look at individual biases and individual behaviors and how we ourselves are and, and can we do things to try to change our biases, which is very difficult. Very hard. And then also to mitigate our biases that we are not able to change. Right. And there are some things that we can do with regard to you know, perspective taking and trying to, you know, build our empathy muscles so that we can take the perspective of another person who might be very different from us, right? And doesn't work in every case, but can actually help us get less biased. Can we think about the type of contact we have with other people, right? As you know, this is, you know, intergroup contact, if done well and done in situations of, of equal access and equal authority, can actually help to change minds. What do we do to, can we work on counter stereotyping? The impressions you're doing, I'm so glad to hear about your daughter's experience with her classmates, but TikTok and I was yes. going to say the oh, TV, surprisingly, you know, so she's getting all sorts of images. So how do we build her awareness about what images she might be consuming that are helping to shape her brain? It's all social media. It really is. It's so powerful and it, it disturbs me greatly. So, so there's work for her and for you in the context of what images she even consumes and how that might affect her own individual ideas. Yeah. We also want to empower her to be wiser in her interactions with others, right? Because many people are on different parts of this journey and she will interact with people who will have very different sets of views than she will. How will she engage them? And are there tools that we can empower her with for how she has difficult conversations with people with whom she disagrees? and working at the interaction level of tackling this. And then for many of us in the course or who YGLs are listening now, we're all, most of us are in some form of institution, whether we, whether yep. someone else pays us or we pay other people, we play a part in an institution. What are the policies of that institution? Yeah. yeah. Right. What, what, what are the processes for people getting jobs or getting promoted or getting raises? How might our biases and how might our, rules and how might our history impact who even applies and who gets promoted and how they are seen here mm -hmm. right what is our capacity as leaders of organizations to make sure that our institutions are not perpetuating this inequality but are actually countering it mm -hmm. and then at the last level of the ideas right and, and the water we swim in 
who are we honoring with our statues and how history gets written and how history gets told? Are we aware of the ideas we might be passing on to our kids mm-hmm. through our language, through our holidays that we celebrate, through the stories that we tell? And can we start to try to you know, make change happen at the idea mm-hmm. level in the society? And then most importantly, as came up in this class, we're just one little country. 95% of the world's population yeah. lives outside of U.S. borders. Mm-hmm. How are we thinking about the global dimensions and mm-hmm. the global implications of this work? Mm. My career has taken me all over the world. I've worked in 50, 60 countries and traveled to most of them. What strikes me about the world, and, and obviously not everybody has been as privileged as me to be able to do this work and, and, and visit developing countries, but what strikes me from my travels and my career is just the sheer extent of this problem. You know, when I went to Rwanda, I saw the genocide. When I went to Cambodia, I saw Khmer Rouge, where, you know, in our lifetime, communities have killed each other. In my lifetime, right? There's still blood on the floor. So, you know, this is such a huge and complicated issue uh, in America and around the world. And I think, you know, when we saw with the election how utterly divided America is and how racism is still so prominent. And I agree with you that tackling business to begin with, I mean, the three areas for me are parenting, business, and education. And I learned so much from this course about myself. So you have one leader here who wants to do everything that I can within my power to do this. And I think I shared during the, the course, I recently learned about the talk. And I hadn't even thought about it, honestly. You mean the talk that many black parents will give to the black kids in the hit teenage years? Exactly. Because, I mean, it literally is the case that I've never thought about it, right? Because it doesn't affect me. I think when George Floyd happened. Can I, I mean, I'm going to stop you right there, Kate, to exercise uh, yes, a, a dialogue here. The phrase when George Floyd happened. Yes. It rubs me in a very uncomfortable oh, way. Oh, okay. Thank you for telling me that. Because it, it didn't happen. He was murdered. He was murdered. Just sharing that yeah. language. Yes, these things are happening everywhere. No, they're yeah. not. They're being done. He was and, and, if we, and if we don't actually address what's actually happening and try to hold institutions accountable mm-hmm. for action that is not acceptable mm-hmm. in this country and should and, not be acceptable. And we were lucky, right? Because they were held accountable. And I think a lot has happened in consequence. A lot has happened. Not enough. And, and I'll tell you quite honestly, I was relieved, but incredibly surprised that he was actually held accountable. Really? Our track record of holding police accountable in these instances is very poor in this country. Yeah. So, so I do see this as a moment of incredible progress for this nation. Mm-hmm. It has not yet led to enough policy change. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of work to be done to actually learn the lessons and seize upon this opportunity of, of national and global consciousness about mm-hmm. the role of police in the communities and interactions with, with particularly mm-hmm. young men of color. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think there is reason to both be pleased that we've seen progress here and also mm-hmm. double down on the work and recognize that the entire criminal legal process in this country is so rife with the legacy of this caste system mm-hmm. that we face. What should the police force be doing in America? 
you say you were frustrated with the outcome and, and very surprised at the outcome. What now has to happen within these police forces? Because we still see it happening, right? Over and over again. It's still going on. Yes, a couple of policemen were made accountable, but what has to happen now? Yeah, so I think there are now people who look at this very closely and actually have developed real models and, and, and have, have expertise in policing. I don't claim to have any expertise in policing, but I would say that, you know, so this is really a, a, a lay person's, a civilian's perspective on this, but I see a level of dehumanization of others. You know, we, the, the history of policing was to control bodies and to protect property, right? Mm -hmm. Now, that's, that's, this is not to demean all police officers by any stretch, and I am grateful and I call them when I need help, and I have very good relationships with, with many of all but racial backgrounds. But I do think there are aspects of the training which perpetuate a dehumanization of subjects. Mm -hmm. And I think that you know, we, we, we did a project here as part of with the Batten School, part of our, uh, exec, our lifelong learning or one of my colleagues who you, you met in this course, Brian Williams, mm -hmm. has worked very closely with police departments mm -hmm. and, and with students to do drive arounds with police departments to recognize the very difficult situations that individual police officers will find themselves in with the training they've received, with the policies they faced. And he did a course called Reimagining Policing, right? Can we dial back, say, okay, how, what is the relationship we want to have in this community? What are the laws intended to be protecting? and why. Mm -hmm. If we are about keeping people safe, what should be the procedures of interacting in a situation where a person you know, has mental illness or something else? Mm -hmm. Is our pattern behavior of oftentimes presuming guilt and violence, is that conducive to the type of community we want to have and community we want to build? Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. So where do the police come from? Where do they live? Who have they interacted with? Are they living in the communities that where they are serving or are they coming in from some other community? Yeah. My sense is rather than solve it for the entire country in one false. So I do think there is legislation we need to, to ban certain practices that disproportionately lead to death, right? Yeah. <laughs> those, those we should be doing away with. And I think the way we, we take our surplus military equipment and we've militarized the police. I think there are things we can do at a macro level, but I actually want to say, you know, even in just the town of Charlottesville, or even on our campus, yeah. what are the processes we are doing so that you can keep both the law enforcement officers and the citizenry and the civilians safe and respectful and recognizing that, you know, to protect and to serve service mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. should be at the heart of it. I mean, how about a very simple next step is let's have the chief of police and his senior leaders come and take that course that you put on. I mean... Let's talk about simple solutions and next steps of how to make this happen. I mean, I think you put a course together in a way that was so tangible, easy to understand. And, you know, after a few days, I was really able to sort of walk away and think, okay, in my little bubble, what can I do? And, you know, I, I have to share with you, Ian, this is such a difficult and sensitive subject. And again, as a, as a white woman talking about this, I often feel very, very uncomfortable because I don't want to, I don't want to get this wrong, right? I don't want to say the wrong words. I don't want to offend anybody. And, you know, I can only do what I do. And, and, and then it's hard. This is hard stuff for it's, everyone. It's, 
it's really hard stuff. And I think we saw that in the class, right? And trying to yeah. both create a context where it was safe for it to be hard, but yeah. there were still moments when people felt unheard yep. or when people said things that were heard in a way by others that was that was not considered constructive. And, you know, that's why a lot of people don't even want to talk about this. Yeah. That's why they said, well, let's take this out of curriculum. So we're actually going in the wrong direction now. And I, I do think that I'd be, I'm very keen for us to try to do more with more police departments. Yeah. And again, I hope you saw that this is not about trying to blame or shame individuals. It's trying to build awareness of how the water we're swimming in is poisoned, is toxic. Yeah. And we react to that toxicity in ways that kind of make it hard, even harder for us to address it. Mm. Ian, we've gone way over time, which I knew was going to happen. Very sadly, I have to say goodbye to you. This is just the beginning of what we're going to be doing together. I know for sure you have my absolute commitment that I will do everything in my power to further the agenda on this. And, you know, I'm bringing it into my company at the body agency and our Excellent. charitable work. And uh, I want to find ways for us to scale what you're doing at the school and, you know, bring in the, the young global leaders much more closely with the commitments that we all made during the course. Thank you. Thank you for your work. My life is better because I have you in it now. Thank you for that. Uh, it's, a, it's a mutual feeling. And I think this is our work, right? This it is, is the our work, work. We, we need to do together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So thank you for being here, Ian. Congratulations with everything that you've done and continue to do. And you have an advocate in me. Fantastic. I'm grateful for you and good luck. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Sex, Body and Soul. Remember, you can find all my favorite products and resources to support your health and sexual wellness through my one-stop shop, The Body Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast listening platform. We are actually partnering up with Vital Voices to get much-needed dignity kits to the refugees in Ukraine. Girls and women do not have access to personal hygiene products that keep them safe and healthy. Please go to thebodyagency.com to donate a dignity kit today. Be sure also to sign up for our email list at The Body Agency for the latest curated recommendations from our industry experts and use our special promotional code podcast10 to get a 10% discount. Thank you for listening.